I think, but I've been interested, it, you know, when I look at my, my career from, from a distance now that I'm getting older now, <laughs> because I, I've been asked now to mentor young composers. And so I'm obviously no longer one, you know, a young composer anymore, uh, even though I was called one until my late thirties. Uh, now the, the understanding that you have entered a different phase in life and that your music and the perception of your music has changed along with it. So when I started um, out in Peru, I really didn't have any idea of like labels, you know, how I would perceive. I didn't even know myself musically, honestly. I went to Finland, I stayed there for seven years, and that distance made me, you know, in parts homesick and in parts aware that Peru had a very wealth a wealth of music, musical heritage you know, that I that I should tap into. So basically, it was because I left Finland that I started to look more into my Peruvian heritage. But then I moved again, and I came to California in 2007 to do a PhD. And you know, I came because I wanted to uh, feed and breathe that freedom that composers like you know Lou Harrison, uh, you know, the great. Harry Parch, I mean, all these, these composers are, are like have these incredible uh, non, uh, completely non-traditional uh, ways of thinking and, and, and conceiving music. Nothing to do with the way I write, you know, but just knowing that they were here and that inspired me, even, the, you know, in parts, the birth of minimalism too. I mean, it's, it's um, I wanted to, I wanted to breathe all that. And I really experienced my own sense of liberty when I came to California. You know, I was far away from the European centers of culture and far away from New York also, which is very much in communication with, with Europe. And uh, me being Peruvian, then I felt this kind of, okay, now I can really do whatever I want. And I, I was not afraid of doing that anymore. And, and then I started to write music, and then, of course, as people were perceiving me, they wanted to find a label. Right? They were like, oh, Jimmy is a Peruvian composer, so he's a Latino influence. And then I wrote one piece called Fiesta, and of course, that became the most well-known piece I ever wrote. <laughs> and then I was stuck in the programs with, you know, only Ginastera or, you know, Arturo Marquez de Danzón and stuff like that for a while. And it took a while to get out of that. Um, and I think Bel Canto helped a lot, the opera that I wrote, because it, it kind of was, I was able to show over the course of like a full evening what I really can do. And it is not just, you know, fiesta. So that, that kind of helps, uh, kind of help. And, and you see, like the symphony number no. two, for example, really doesn't have anything to do with my Peruvian heritage, but there are other works that do. So what I, what I think is, is just that I, I'm, I'm enjoying this period in time right now where I have found enough collaborators who trust me, uh, who believe in what I do, and who are not expecting uh, any specific brand or stylistic kind of, uh, they're, not, they're not expecting me to comply with any stylistic expectations in my head at this point in time. That's a little bit of my conversation with composer Jimmy Lopez Bellido. Uh, it was so great to catch up with Jimmy. We used to serve on the Program Council for New Music USA for many years. And I first discovered his music uh, when Chicago Lyric Opera commissioned him to write the operatic version of Bel Canto, 
Uh, he talked about that a little bit. And I followed his career ever since with great interest because Jimmy really specializes in these large-scale forms. He's writing symphonies. He's writing concerti. And that's kind of unusual for composers in this country uh, to specialize in larger forms like that. So it's really interesting to hear what he's doing. And he has a new album out uh, featuring the Houston Symphony Orchestra, Andres Orozco Estrada, conductor, and uh, violin soloist Leticia Moreno also. And so it was a great opportunity or uh, excuse <laughs> to catch up with Jimmy, talk about this album and feature some of his music. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead. I'm going to return to the Second Symphony by Jimmy Lopez Beido in a moment. But first, let's hear from him more about uh, the inspiration for the piece. Yeah, wow, that's that's quite a journey. Um, let's, let me try to be as concise as I can. <laughs> so, you know, when I when I was trying to think about what is important to Houston, I I was I was sitting to brainstorm about my residency, right? And I was like, what is important to the city of Houston? So answer number one is not as evident as we might think. And that is that they are very proud of being a, a very mixed community. And, and so also being the most receptive city in the whole United States to refugees. <laughs> the other important aspect to Houston, though, <laughs> is the space program, which is, you know, something that I've been fascinated since I was a child. And so along that strand of things, um, I decided to pay homage to, to basically a, a, a few NASA missions uh, or iconic, you know, iconic, iconic missions, really. Um, and so I, I decided to start with Voyager. And the reason why I started with that is because it has a musical element to it. Also because it's a man-made object that has made it the farthest, so it kind of makes us travel already a long distance mentally the moment we, we think of it. And, but Carl Sagan uh, embedded a golden record in it. And in that golden record, among many, many things, there is a Morse code. And the Morse code that says per aspera ad astra, which means through hardship to the stars. So I, I took a little bit of that and I made it the motif. And so I already had a pitch, which was B natural, and I already had, um, because I, you know, if you listen to the original, it's, it's in B natural, and also a, a rhythm. You know? So I thought, well, that's, that's the motif for the piece. And it's, it really permeates throughout the whole work. So we start with that, played by the, the vibraphone. And, and the first movement kind of explores that, the, the Voyager, the Voyager space probes. The second one is called Apollo, and it refers to all the Apollo missions. Really, it's not I, and it was so much fun to write this symphony because for before writing each movement, I went on to do a lot of research. But this was this was different because this was documentaries and books and everything about. So I learned so much about each mission and the Apollo. You know, we don't know about the Apollo first tragedy, for example, much, and uh, but and we don't know much about Apollo, Apollo eight or Apollo seventeen. You know, but each each one of them has their their own story. You know, we, but and they are all they all really basically made their way into this into this movement, and the reason why I brought the the glass harmonica, which the instrument properly named, this one that I use is called verophone. And it's because I, I wanted to bring something that was kind of eerie and alien and 
and also kind of out out of this world, you know, and 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 it really performs this task wonderfully because the moment you listen to that instrument, you're transported somewhere else. the The third movement is called Hubble, and of course, it's inspired by the Hubble telescope. And the reason is because, you know, it's it has opened up a universe, a universe of um, it really opened up our universe to us. We didn't know the universe was so large or so old. We we learned a lot of things. We learned the age of the universe. We learned, you know, there's the, the amount of information that we have gathered from that mission, from that telescope specifically, is just stunning. But one thing we don't know, a lot of people might not remember though, is that when it was first launched, it wasn't working properly. You know, it, it, was, it was malfunctioning. It was delivering photos that were blurred and so they thought well billions of dollars and, and this is it but they were able to find a very smart fix and so the beginnings of the movement kind of reflects that it has the wind machine it has the whole the whole orchestra doing like interesting effects with colenio you know out of the different parts like kind of kind of a machine that is kind of starting but not quite not working properly until it finally does and you know there's an explosion of stars you know, and that's also kind of represented musically in the movie uh number four is the emotional core there's five movements in total so number four is the emotional core is called challenger because i felt um, it was a risky decision because it's very close to home for Houstonians. You know, a lot of people who were in the audience actually knew people who, who were in the mission. So it's it's not something that it, I, I took lightly, you know. And and the decision was, I, I felt that it was important to for all of us to understand that, you know, space exploration is not only this fun, beautiful, shiny thing, it's, it's full of risk. And, and nothing depicts more the 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 risk than the, than those tragedies like right? Colombia and and Challenger, Challenger though is embedded in everyone's you know psyche you know and and, and it has been so for for so long and but the one thing when I when I studied you know the and I saw some documentaries about the Challenger mission is that we focus so much on the tragedy we don't we don't really know everything that went behind before there was just excitement and joy. You know, everybody was so excited, and there was this teacher. Uh, she was going to be the first civilian, you know, in space, and so all the kids were excited. I think that's what makes it more heartbreaking. It was it was just the expectation, and all the hopes that were placed in it, and so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted most of the movement is just full of joy and optimism, and tragedy just strikes at the very at the very end. And I, you cannot miss it. I mean, the way I, I, I painted sonically is very clear. I, I, I even added an alarm, like an electric alarm uh, that stands above the piece that brings this um, um, kind of a very, very impactful, you know, moment. After which the orchestra basically fades into, into silence. And from silence, we begin movement number five, which is called Revelation, which is not based on any mission, at least not a mission that has happened yet, because it's, it's hypothetical. You know, it takes place in the future. Uh, imagining that finally, 
somebody, some intelligent civilization has grabbed, has grabbed the one of the voyeur probes, uh, decoded the, the messages, the Morse code specifically, and then they send Morse code messages in Morse code back to us. You know? So a lot of this is happening and nobody knows, of course, but I have a lot of Morse code words flying you know, throughout the fifth movement um, between um, the out of, uh, you know, offstage trumpets and the onstage trumpets too. I bring the offstage trumpets also later on to the stage and then we end up with seven trumpets on stage, which is, it makes for a very loud kind of finale. Um, but also very, I mean, it justifies, I think, the whole the whole journey, right? So it's about 15 minutes long, uh, a performance of the symphony. So um, when, when you when you see through all of it, I think you you can be you can be transported to that. And that took a couple of years to really write, with other projects in between. But it was it was it was really like the one thing that was taking most of my attention during the in that period of time yeah oh that's fantastic that's a great story oh and i forgot to say i went to nasa i think that was one of the coolest things <laughs> that came out of this not only did i go to nasa i mean they took me to all the facilities and but i think the moment that really grabbed me uh was when we went to the flight control area you know where they it was I saw a flight director who was actually communicating with with the space station at that specific moment in time. And I felt like, should I be really interrupting this person? <laughs> it might be saying something really important. And then he was like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. And then he's just like, hold on, you know, to the astronaut. <laughs> and then we were just having a chat about what his job is and what they do. And of course, you have, um, you know, the, the control area represents many departments. You can have, like, say, four or sometimes one person only representing an entire department that's somewhere else, is housed somewhere else uh, in the building or elsewhere. You know, so what you see there is just is just the tip of the iceberg. But behind that, there's like tons of people, you know, making calculations, trajectories, and all that, and they have to take into account everything so that everything works like clockwork. And and that was very impressive, you know, and it it, it made it real. All the, all the things that I have been watching, the documentaries and all that, it just felt real you know, when I was in that room. Let's hear the third movement inspired by the Hubble telescope. We'll hear it in its entirety. Here is the Houston Symphony Orchestra led by Andres Orozco Estrada.
Um, let's talk about the album that you have coming out. Uh, so uh, first of all, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the music specifically in a moment, but tell me about uh, how the recording project itself came about. Yeah, so I'm very excited this happened, actually. It, it, it might not have happened at some point because <clears throat> when I came in as composer in residence uh, with the Houston Symphony, we didn't have any plans to record my works. Uh, the way we, you know, after a few months of brainstorming, we defined my residency with three large kind of projects, the violin concerto, the symphony, and another project for uh, mentorship, mentorship to young composers called uh, Resilient Sounds. And that was actually the one that gave me the most work and, the, and that was the most fascinating, but that's kind of all, almost all of it behind the scenes, right? And, but in any case, the, the concerto was supposed to be premiered in 2017. Uh, September. And then Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, so they had to cancel the performance. And they were looking for new dates, but then, you know, between Andres Orozco Estrada's and Leticia Moreno's uh, and the orchestra's uh, schedule, they were only able to find a date in 2019. And it just gave us enough time to start thinking about whether we should record it, you know, because I was thinking, well, I'm going to write this piece and I'm going to write a symphony. Both could make a really nice album, you know, same orchestra, same conductor, uh, and it will kind of document, you know, the two works that I'm doing with the residency. So I kind of, I, I really, and it was a moment of transition for the orchestra, um, but they were very, very gracious about it and they were on board. I said, yep. And, you know, in that period of time, they, they had um, uh, the recording engineer called Brad Sales, fantastic. But they had it in-house in a way, but then in that process, he became like really their permanent assigned recording engineer. Um, then they also had a change of CEO in, the, in between. Uh, there were a lot of things happening, but the project took, you know, they recorded and we found the label afterwards, in fact, as a matter of fact. So, um, and it was of course good that we have three performances, right? Plus the dress rehearsal for each of these works. So that, that we had a lot of footage to choose from. Uh, even, th even though, uh, even then, I mean, for a soloist, it could be nerve-wracking to record the very first time, you know, but Leticia did a really good job. So, so I'm just happy it, 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 was, it was done because, I mean, especially the second symphony, it has, you know, it's so ambitious in the in this scope and, and it uses so many instruments like, I don't re I don't really know when the next performance is going to take place, honestly. <laughs> no, I mean, who's going to want to to hire a glass harmonica player, uh, more specifically called a verophone? Uh, so we found that person, and, but but it was not an easy task either, you know. And but in any case, they went all for it. So I really said, all right, we just we're just going to do it because when you have a partner like that, you, you just want to, you know. That gives you total creative freedom. It is good. So the recording kind of was somewhere in the middle. The idea of doing that, um, and it was supposed to be released also two years ago. But then, you know, for a series of setbacks, here we are. But super happy. I think the timing is great. Um, so it's 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 been quite an adventure. Actually, it's been many years in the making. 
I'm talking with composer Jimmy Lopez Bellido about his new album featuring two really ambitious large-scale works for the Houston Symphony Orchestra. Uh, one is Ad Astra, Symphony Number no. 2, a five-movement work, each one inspired by a different space program of NASA. And the second is the Violin Concerto. And I want to uh, play the first movement of the Violin Concerto, but first, let's hear more from Jimmy about the piece. So Andres wanted me to write a Violin Concerto, in fact. He because he knew the soloist, Leticia. I happened to know her, not in person, but I knew of her, and I, I had wanted to write for her, so I, it kind of the stars aligned, and she has this powerful range, you know, throughout the whole instrument. I really go into very extreme regions, especially in the second movement, but I don't only visit, you know, those regions. I really stay there for prolonged periods of time, and I keep climbing and climbing and climbing up, and she has this little tiny bit of string, and I don't know how she's able to, you know, extract so much sound out of it. And so when I saw that, those qualities in her, that's what I wanted to really um, use the most, you know, because obviously in the case of a concerto, you really need to, to work with the soloist very closely. And that's what we did, you know, I, I flew to Valencia, uh, where she lives, and we, we spent some time exchanging ideas. I showed her what I had written. She made many suggestions. I came back with ideas, made some changes. But the overall theme, the overall theme is something I had had in my head for many years, which is the uh, a piece inspired by the, the Northern Lights. So I, I lived in Finland between 2000 and 2007 in Helsinki. And you don't always see them in Helsinki. I mean, it's, it's rare. You, you need to travel to the north of Finland to see them. But they are quite spectacular. They are quite 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 unique, you know. And um, and so that's when that's where the idea came from because you see them and you see them as waves. Right? We know that sound and light are waves, so there is that in common. <laughs> and when I was looking at those uh, at those waves of light coming at you, <clears throat> it kind of as a musician I couldn't avoid but thinking, you know. How would this? How would you experience this with sound? You know, if you if you were able to stand here and just some massive waves of sound were coming at you, um, so I that idea had been there for many years. I just hadn't had the chance to to develop it. And with a violin concerto, you know, there's there's also um, my favorite violin concerto is Sibelius, and you know, I listened to it a million times when I was in Finland. They also have a competition, so all the competitors need to play that. And uh, and you know there was it's kind of um it's a kind of a love letter to Finland too you know, because I spent so much time there, and that violin concerto means so much to to the Finns for sure. And then you know coupling that with the idea of, of having lived there in the auroras, so that that was what what triggered kind of the the whole the whole spark now musically speaking you know i obviously wanted to create some variety so northern lights in uh, happen in the, at the poles so the northern lights are called aurora borealis and the ones in the south are called aurora australis and then in other planets where the axes are more tilted auroras can even take place in the equator so the first movement is called the Equatorialis. So that's kind of a license that I took. So that's how I ended up with three movements. You know, the first one is a little alien, a little strange. Um, that's kind of the 
the auroras from a, from another planet that we don't know. And you know, the borealis is kind of transmitting all that peace and that quiet and that delicate, you know, uh, atmosphere that you you perceive the the crisp air of northern Finland in Lapland. And then the south, it's more, you know, whatever associations we have, you know, with with a little a little wild, a little more active, a little more on fire, you know. We also so we also associated each movement with colors, you know, because we somewhere along the lines, I don't know, we were becoming more and more ambitious with this. And and someone suggested, why don't we have a light artist? And I was like, well, sure. Why don't we have a light artist? <laughs> so Clint Allen, who's a light designer, he came and he made a, a combination of projections and light. And and you ended up having this, you know, I think we chose different colors, kind of greenish for the beginning, and then more like bluish for the second movement and, and red and yellow for the last, you know, which are coral colors that you can see. You know, green is the most common, but you, you see them in many, many different colors as auroras. And so that kind of added to the whole excitement. And also to create an effect that you can perceive it somehow in the recording, but we have three what I call echo violins. So there is a violin on stage right. Um, there's another one on stage left, and there's one on like, the center, but back in the among the audience, there the three of them are actually embedded within the hall, and they communicate only in the second movement with with the soloist. So that was quite fun to feel. We had to test, you know, acoustically whether this was going to work and what could work. Uh, a Jones Hall, even a pizzicato, was you know possible to be perceived like all the way from the back. So I use all those these different effects. And uh, that created the illusion that we were surrounded by, you know, sound also, which is something that I was trying to, you know, incorporate into the piece. Um, yeah, that's, that's, well, so uh, that, and that was premiered and, and Leticia has, has, you know, and there was one more thing about that. So the piece was finished. It was supposed to be premiered in 2017, as I said, and then the hurricane came. And then because it, it was postponed, I decided to write a cadenza. You know, I, so I, I hadn't had this idea of a cadenza at the end of the piece. And I affect, you know, affectionately call it the Harvey cadenza because it's, it's quite difficult also, but it's also, it wouldn't have happened had the hurricane not, not taken place. So I added it and it really gave a whole new dimension to the piece. I mean, and it ended up being very, a very substantial concerto, you know, it's, um, I think the recording is 36, 37 minutes long. I just didn't know it was going to be that extensive, but that's how long it took for it to, to unfold itself. So it has a little bit of its kind of symphonic proportions.
That is movement one of the Violin Concerto by Jimmy Lopez Beido, and we heard the Houston Symphony Orchestra, Andres Orozco Estrada, conductor, and the violin soloist, my goodness, the wonderful Leticia Moreno. What fantastic playing on uh, this wonderful violin concerto. I'm going to turn now to the symphony number two. Uh, the violin concerto is such a large-scale piece, I don't know that I can fit another movement in in the, in the hour that we have for this show, but let's go back to Ad Astra, symphony number two, Let's hear what he does in movement 
four.
Music that pays homage to the Challenger disaster. As uh, composer Jimmy Lopez Biedo said, you can't have great advances in science in uh, exploration without some risk. And uh, so I, th I think it was a brave decision in some respects, but he handled it perfectly. It's a wonderful piece, and I, I really wanted to include it because I think it's done so well. The whole symphony is fantastic, all five movements of Ad Astra exploring different aspects of uh, NASA's space program, which of course is central to Houston's identity, and uh, the violin concerto as well. I only got to play one movement of it, uh, so please do check out this marvelous new release from Jimmy Lopez B, though, and I want to thank Jimmy for being a guest on the program as well. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org. For Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bosted. Thanks so much for listening.